when people go to a show to uh, watch a magician perform, or when you're watching an illusionist on TV, one of the first things you often think or say after they perform an amazing stunt is what? What do you think? How do they do that, right? How do they do that? Behind that question is a belief that there is a logical explanation for what you've just seen. Well, before salvation, that's the way I felt when I was observing other Christians. While I would look at and see a transformed life, a life completely different from my own, I would often think to myself, how do they do that? What's the story behind him or her? Why is their life so much different from mine? What do they have that I don't have? What is the secret behind their life? And it was not until God changed my heart and life that I learned the mystery. We're going to talk today about that mystery, the secret behind a transformed life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. We're continuing our series through Titus entitled The Right Kind of Church in a World Gone Wrong. We're going to be studying this morning from verses 11 through 15 of Titus 2 and discussing the right foundation that a Christ follower is to have in a world gone wrong. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is very much connected to the passage we looked at last week in verses 1 through 10. So to really understand this passage in its context, it's necessary to understand it in connection with the previous passage. As I've explained already in this book, Paul is writing in this book to his protege Titus, whom he left on the island of Crete to work and minister there, work with the churches there on how they can remain strong and healthy, how they can be built up in a broken and fallen world on a godless island where they are tempted to give in to the influences of the culture and where they're being influenced by the wicked teachings of of false teachers like the Judaizers. Paul is instructing Titus on what to do for the churches there that will help them stay strong and be healthy and bring honor and glory to God and make an impact for him in his kingdom in a world gone wrong. In chapter 1, Paul speaks of the importance of appointing godly leaders, elders, to make decisions in the church that will benefit the church and serve to grow the church in godliness. He calls for them to provide biblical instruction to God's people so that they think rightly, so that they then have the right desires, so that they will then live rightly. Paul also calls for Titus and the elders to protect the truth of God's word from false teachers by silencing them or muzzling them. That's literally what that word means. Encountering their false teachings with the truth of God's word. In chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus from Titus and the elders to the church Laity to the people in the congregations on the island of Crete. In this chapter, chapter 2, Paul provides very specific, straightforward, direct, practical instruction 
on what the church must be in a broken and fallen world. He speaks to the leaders first in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, and says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Combat the teachings that tear the church apart, these false teachings, with a teaching that builds the church up. Combat false teachings with the truth, with biblical teaching. He calls for the older men in the church with years under their belt and life lessons learned in those years to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. He calls for them to be sound in faith, students of the word, teaching and living in accordance with the word. They are to love well. He also calls for them to be steadfast, to persevere, to continue on the hard but right path, to endure, to grow and minister to others so that they grow and minister to others. Paul calls for the older women in the church to be devout, pious, sold out to the Lord, not to be gossips, to love and be committed to and teach younger women what's right and what's good, what is godly, what is biblical. To the younger Christ-following women, Paul says, they're to love their husbands and their children and remain faithful to their husbands. They are to understand the importance of their role in the home as a committed helper to their husbands and a discipler of their children. They are to be kind and submissive to their husbands. And if you were out last week, please get online and hear my discussion on that okay we don't have time to go through it again today but get online and and listen to last week's sermon fellowshipjacksonville.com or subscribe to our podcast and listen to that paul says the younger women are to do this that the word of god may not be reviled titus 2 5 paul tells the younger men following christ to be self-controlled to resist temptation, to keep their emotions in check. He calls for believing bond servants to place themselves under the authority of their master. Again, for more comments on this, check out our sermon from last week. He calls for them to be kind and respectful in speech and not argumentative. He calls for them to display good character, not mishandling money, not being dishonest, but serving faithfully in in humility, showing all good faith, explaining that their behavior adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul explains that God's people, men and women, husbands and wives, leaders and laity, living in this way will build the church up, not tear the church down. And will not be influenced by the wickedness of their culture, but will be a godly influencer in the culture for the glory of God. Well, after listing out all of these qualities for Christ followers in the church, a question that can be asked, and often is, is the one I used to ask before salvation. How can people do this? How can they live like this? How can they be this way? Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness, reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine, teaching what is good, loving their husbands and children, unconditionally, sacrificially, self-controlled, pure, kind, submissive, a model of good works, showing integrity, dignity, being sound in speech, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. 
How on earth can we be this way? How can people be like this? I used to ask this question. Well, Paul answers this question for us in this miniature discourse that he gives us in verses 11 through 15. In this passage, Paul takes a little rabbit trail, okay, to explain to his readers that transformed people should live transformed lives, okay? Those whose hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God applying the accomplished work of Christ, they are to live their lives to bring glory to God. And when they do, Christ's church is built up, it's made strong, and makes an impact in the world. Watch this. Transformed people should live transformed lives. And the fruit from that transformation results in others being transformed. Let me say it again. Transformed people live transformed lives. And the fruit from that transformation results in others being transformed. That's how it works. So Paul is going to explain the foundation for the fruits of the godly in verses 11 through 15 of Titus 2. How can God's people live godly lives? How can they be this way? Point number one, they can live this way because the penalty for their sin has been removed. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation for all people. So get this, after explaining how godly men and women, young and old, are to live, Paul explains how they are able to live the way he calls for them to live. He says, for, because, the grace of God has appeared. Now, the word grace is used over and over again in Scripture in reference to our salvation. You know why? Because God does not want us to forget that we are undeserving completely of the favor that he's shown us. We're not worthy of it. We don't deserve it. You can't say it's not fair if you don't have it. You don't deserve it. God, by his own initiative, motivated solely by his own goodness, has provided salvation for us. It is unmerited, undeserved. And if you don't get that point this week, you will next week in the first part of Titus chapter 3. Come back. Notice something else about the phrase grace of God. It's personified here. Paul says it has appeared. What has appeared? The grace of God. Well, when did the grace of God appear? When Christ came, right? He was, he was promised all throughout the Old Testament. In the fullness of time, he came. And he took on flesh. He moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. When he appeared, the grace of God appeared. Christ is grace personified. Without Christ, without his person and work, there would be no grace. Ultimately, we would still be in our sin without a hope in the world. That's why I don't like to talk about grace without talking about Jesus. That's why I love this acronym. Look at it up on the screen. I love this. Definition of grace right here. God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that. 
That is the definition there. That's what grace is and why you cannot talk about it apart from Jesus. By, by Christ coming and, and becoming one of us and living for us and dying in our place and rising again, we are able through faith alone in Him alone to be forgiven of sin and transformed from the inside out and restored to God to have life eternal through Christ. The grace of God has appeared in the Lord Jesus, bringing salvation. The fact that Christ came to save us also should remind us we are in need of rescue. We need to be rescued from what? Scripture is clear. Read the book. From sin and God's judgment. Scripture is crystal clear that while we are created by God in His image, we rebelled. We have forsaken the God who made us and created us to live in right relationship with Him. We have set ourselves against Him, and He in turn has set Himself against us. And if we die in our sins, we will meet God in judgment and be condemned to hell for eternity. That's the gospel truth right there. Don't believe anyone who tells you any different. Praise be to God that he sent Christ to save us. The grace of God has appeared. Christ has come bringing salvation for all people. Now the end of this verse has been horribly mistranslated by universalists. Those who believe that everyone's going to be saved in the end, Satan included. Don't believe that. They translate that verse to be saying this, but unfortunately, they don't translate this verse with the rest of Scripture that teaches that salvation is not universal. Those who reject Christ are condemned. Clearly told that in Scripture. Paul's not saying that everyone will be saved no matter what. I prefer the NASB translation here that says to all men. I believe that's, that's correct there. Instead of for all people, to all men. What Paul is saying is that the grace of God has appeared in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation or making salvation available to all men and will only benefit those who believe. So, so get this, Christ has come and has accomplished salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, and we're told that all who believe on him and trust in him alone for salvation will not be condemned, but will be set free. They will be saved by God, from God, from his wrath, and from the penalty of sin and after this those who have truly been forgiven freed from the penalty of sin saved from God and from his wrath they live changed lives transformed by that work transformed people should live transformed lives the one who has been freed from sin freed from God's judgment restored to God to live for him should live as if they're free should live for God and His glory. When you come to this realization, when the Spirit of God wakes you up to what you've been rescued from, what should result from that is absolute surrender, complete commitment, total submission to God, to His will, and to His ways. So that's the first reason why God's people are able to live godly lives. Because the penalty of sin has been removed. Second reason, 
The power of sin has been broken. Amen? Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the previous point, we talked about what God has done, past tense, an incredible work in the hearts and lives of believers, bringing them to their knees, to repentance, leading them to the feet of Jesus in surrender. Here in verse 12, we learn that the work that God began in us as believers, it continues. He is at work right now in our hearts and lives, believers. When the penalty of sin was removed, the power of sin was broken. Our desires changed. We were transformed. Our inner man was reprogrammed. And we, we learn in Scripture that God is at work in us to do this work, to will and to do. He's at work in us right now, believers. Training us to renounce ungodliness, and to live God-honoring lives. You know what ungodliness is? Simply defined as behavior that God despises. That's what it is. If you want to know what is ungodly, you just got to look it up. You should have your Bibles with you. Look it up. Study the book. It's not just what we think and what we feel might be wrong. It may be something that you think and that feels right, that the world says is good. Remember when we were in Ruth, we said that that story happened during the time when the judges ruled. And during that time, we're told that, that the people were wicked because they did that which was right in their own eyes, in accordance with their own worldly passions. He says here, God trains us to renounce worldly passions. Living a godly life means renouncing, resisting behavior that God despises. It's that simple. Behavior that the world believes is right and good, but God says is wrong and bad. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and life, your desires are altered. Your want-tos change. You move from what you want and what the world says is right and good to what God wants and what he says is right and good. Skip down to verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ has redeemed us through the work he accomplished at Calvary he has saved us from all lawlessness. He has saved us from the power of sin so that he might purify us, so that he might grow us in godliness, setting us apart. He has set us apart for himself, a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. Charles Swindoll said it in this way. Look at it up on the screen from his commentary on Titus. It says, Jesus took our place paid the penalty of our sin so that we might be freed from slavery to sin. We were indentured to evil, compelled to do its bidding, but Jesus bought us out of bondage so that we would no longer serve that old master. We were compelled to do evil under the old master, under the new master. Good deeds arise from within, driven by zeal. 
God's work enables us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This is not something we talk about a whole lot. We, we, we don't often talk about the present. We talk about what we've been saved from, right? And we talk about our future in glory, but we don't spend a lot of time right now in the present age, but Scripture does. God, God has broken the power of sin in our life. He has given us His Spirit to guide and direct us and convict us and move us forward in godliness. Look at Warren Wiersbe's quote from his commentary on Titus. This is great. Salvation is not only a change in position, but it's also a change in attitude, appetite, ambition, and action. The same grace that redeems us also reforms our lives and makes us godly. True. Believers, remember the first time after salvation when you said no to sin and yes to God? You remember that? Wasn't it awesome? I'll never forget, for me, I remember like it was yesterday. I had just been a believer a week. I was in a situation with someone else that I shouldn't have been in. And God moved upon me to resist that sin and get up and get out of there. I had been a Christian for a week. It was incredible. I had self-control I didn't know I had. I was no longer living like the world. For the first time in my life, I was speaking words that were upright and honoring to God. Was I perfect? Not even close. Am I now? Of course not. None of us are. But you know what? I was messed up when I messed up, and I was messed up over things and convicted by things I would have never even thought about before Jesus. I was filling up with God's word, growing in my knowledge of the behavior that he loves and the behavior that he despises. And by his grace and his enabling, I was living accordingly. Spirit of God was instructing me and guiding me in truth and in no way, shape, or form did I deserve any praise for any of it. It was by grace that I was able to live that way. Like Paul said, by God's grace, I am what I am. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're struggling. You're beat down because of some personal struggles you're having. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you this morning. Listen, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, take heart. The power of sin has been broken. While the presence of sin has not yet been completely removed, we're going to talk about that the next point. If Christ is Lord of your life, you have his spirit in you, and you have the power to resist sin and bring glory to God with your life. So take heart, do not give up, keep running this race, and have faith. Believers, have faith. With the faith that you placed in Christ alone for salvation, you're to place that same faith in him to give you victory over sin in your life. Do you realize that? We're to live by faith. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifetime thing. I just came up with that. I'm going to use it again. Somebody mark it down. Connie, mark that down for me. We, we, we are called by God to live by faith. 
You, you have to believe that the power of sin is broken. You have to believe that God works in his people, training them to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Are you trusting in him to do this work in your life? There are people that I've met that can accurately explain the doctrine of sanctification, how God works in our heart and life to grow us in godliness. They can explain it from Scripture, but they are struggling because they're not embracing it by faith. They know it here, but not here. They're not applying it. We have to preach to our minds until our hearts believe it. That's your assignment this week. We have to camp out in his word and study where he, he, he teaches us, he is at work in us, and we need to believe that he will do this work by faith. That's what it means to live by faith. So the reason why God's people are able to live godly lives is because the penalty of sin has been removed, the power of sin has been broken, and because, point number three, the presence of sin will one day be no more. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul comes full circle here. He begins in verse 11 talking about what's taken place in the past. We have been saved, changed from the inside out. We are being saved. God is working in us, training us to renounce ungodliness and live self-controlled and godly lives in the here and now. And in verse 13, he talks about our future salvation. There is coming a day when Christ is returning. There is, there is going to be this great and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what's called our blessed hope, believers. It's what we're to live for. It's what we're to long for. And that word hope, when we talk about our blessed hope, it doesn't mean wishful thinking. Oftentimes people talk about hope and faith like hoping, you know, something will happen. Like, I have faith it'll rain. I, I hope my football team wins, you know. I have faith I'll get that promotion. That's not, that's not the biblical definition here. It's not wishful thinking. It is a guarantee. It's certain that Christ is returning. It's a guaranteed assurance that we have. Christ is returning for his bride, his true church. He is returning for us believers, and we're called to be waiting for that day. And our assurance of his return, get this, it influences the way we live today. Christ is returning, and he is going to fix the world that we broke by our sin. He's going to fix us. He's going to remove sin from our lives and world forever. Notice how Paul ends the passage. He, he tells Titus, he tells the elders in the churches in Crete, he tells God's people, declare these things. Church, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He calls for Titus, declare these things. The word declare, this means what it means. Declare, to speak, to talk, to share, to preach, to teach these things. That word's often used in connection with the gospel message. Paul calls for Titus 
and the leaders in Crete, the congregants of the churches in Crete, to declare these things, to teach that through faith alone in Christ alone, the penalty of sin is removed, the power of sin is broken, and the presence of sin will one day be no more. He says, declare that in Christ, people are forgiven, they're restored to God. In Him, they can grow in godliness and live godly lives and have the blessed hope of His return. He says, declare these things, exhort them with all authority. That word exhort just means to encourage. We're to encourage one another with this gospel message, especially during tough times. We're to encourage God's people with God's gospel reminding them, because we all need a reminding of it, that there is hope in this fallen and broken world in which we live. Christ is returning. He's going to fix what we broke. Have hope. Be encouraged. Paul also says rebuke them. We're to rebuke God's people. Correct them. When they are saying and thinking and living in ways that's counter to this gospel message. We're, we're to correct believers. We, we, we need to be serious about being biblical and serious about our brothers and sisters in Christ living biblically and growing in godliness and living for the glory of God so, they, so that they will grow and so that the church will be built up. You ought to love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to not allow them to go down that path to speak truth into their life and love. And believers, we ought to be willing when it's needed to be on the receiving end of that as well. Those types of people should be your best friends, those who correct you in love because they desire for you to grow and be who God has called you to be in Jesus. Paul tells Titus, let no one disregard you. Don't let anyone challenge you on this message. Not because he wanted Titus to be prideful, like, now oh, you're going to challenge me and what I say and, and my intelligence? That's not what he's getting at here. He's calling for him to contend for this message, contend for the faith, defend the truth of God's gospel message with boldness, be a bold witness for him. I want to end today by doing that as well because I know each and every week in both services, there are people, some who come each and every week, who have not yet responded to this gospel message with repentance and faith. I know there are people not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Maybe I'm speaking to you this morning. I want to declare to you this morning. I want to encourage you, urge you today to respond to this message if you have not by forsaking your sin and placing your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Listen, in Him, in Christ, because of His person and work, because of His life, death, and resurrection, you can be saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and have the promise of sin's complete removal in the future when Christ returns, if you would place your faith and trust in Him today. Have you done that? Is Christ Lord of your life? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? I pray you would today. Let's pray together.